Hi, this is Andrew York. Welcome to All Strings Considered. This is about yeah. life. Music is about life. It should be a joyful kind of thing where you search for ideas that move you. That's the bottom line. And suddenly, the most famous guitarist at the time, it's hard to recognize now how famous Williams was in the 80s. I mean, mm -hmm. the guitar world has changed. There's really not many stars. find some of those moments are so ephemeral that if I don't catch it right then, you can go back seconds later and let me play that again. It's like, God, what was it? I did something a little different that really had the right feel. You can lose it so quickly. So if you tape it, you just go back and there, ah, oh, that's set too. Yeah. yeah. I just had to go. I just, my inner self was saying, you gotta go. You gotta go do your next thing. Hey everyone, and welcome back to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf, And today I'm really excited to present the Grammy-winning guitarist and composer, Andrew York. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. On the show today, you'll hear some music and background from Andrew's new double CD album titled Yamor, hear him discuss his incredible appetite for creative expression, his history playing and composing with the L.A. Guitar Quartet, a bit about the origins of his incredibly well-known piece Sunburst, a look at his compositional process, some great advice for those amateur composers out there, just really a plethora of great music and information. So, am I the only one who thinks of the movie Three Amigos every time someone says plethora? I have put many beautiful piñatas in the storeroom, each of them filled with little surprises. Many piñatas? Oh, yes, many! Would you say I have a plethora of piñatas? Oh, yes, <laughs> you have a plethora. Jefe, what is a plethora? Why, guapo? Well, you told me I have a plethora, and I just would like to know if you know what a plethora is. I would not like to think that a person would tell someone he has a plethora and find out that that person has no idea what it means to have a plethora. All right, now that that's thankfully out of my system, don't forget the GFA International Convention and Competition will take place from June 25 to 30 in Louisville, Kentucky. Featuring guest artists like Soren Dukic, Marchandila, Elliot Fisk, Berta Rojas, and lots more. For more information, visit the GFA website at guitarfoundation.org. Let's start off with how Andrew's piece Sunburst, a work that is equally popular in both classical and steel string guitar fields, began its journey into the Solo Guitar Hall of Fame. Well, this is a really interesting story. Uh in 1986, I went to Europe for three months. And that was a really epic journey. And it was the, the classic hero's journey. And I mean that in, in an uh, archetypal sense, not that I was a hero, but the, like if you read Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, a hero's journey is the, just defined as a journey, often a dangerous one, where you leave everything you know and everyone you know, go out and you achieve something. You bring something back of import, either knowledge or ability, or, and mm -hmm. you come back. And that's the hero's journey, where you come back with something important, something that mm -hmm. changes mm -hmm. you Changed or your culture. You. To me, that's that really was it. Several things happened on that trip. One. I improvised the piece Andesy, which ended up being on Wyndham Hill right when I got back, which was huge. It made me extremely visible in the fingerstyle world, which still has great ramifications. I know a lot of those guys and have toured with them. The second thing happened was in the classical world. I went to Cordoba to uh, take part in a festival where John Williams was teaching um, ensemble. He was coaching ensembles. Mm. And I went over with a friend and we played my duet arrangement of the Nutcracker Suite. I'd arranged the whole suite 
as a duet. Oh, that's rough. Yeah, it was really hard to play. And I remember we, my friend and I showed up, and John Williams was saying, I can't quite imagine that. I can't imagine this working. So we began to play it, and he got really interested, and he, and he goes, fantastic. You know, he was really impressed by how well it worked, as was I. You know, I had no idea that the pieces would work well. I did each one, one at a time, wondering how I could make them be a success. I figured out ways to put them together in ways that really did work. So. So he, he was interested to hear this, and we worked on it quite a bit. Now, Ben Verdery was, was teaching at the festival as well, and I had just written Sunburst. I had not even written it down. I played it for Ben, and he just said, well, you have to play this on the afternoon student concert, and I'm going to make sure John is there. So I really owe Ben a debt for this. I played two pieces, Muir Woods. John Williams listening and that one he didn't really like which I think is beautiful it's actually three voice and, and harmonies are quite complex but it wasn't his cup of tea mm -hmm. fair enough but then I played Sunburst and he liked that a lot so we went out and had coffee afterward and he asked me to send him the music because I, I hadn't written it out so when I got back home I did mm -hmm. we stayed in touch after that for a good while I sent him some more music and he played Sunday Morning Overcast for a while another one of my pieces in concerts I sent him Lullaby another piece that I had written earlier mm -hmm. and he ended up recording those two together on his record Spirit of the Guitar so and at the same time he was touring Sunburst a lot in fact someone saw him in a concert where there was a giant Sunburst behind him on the stage I had no idea so it became the so, theme for the whole concert I, yeah, apparently I didn't see this but I did hear him play it in Los Angeles when he came played in Bassett Auditorium and so what this did, I was about to become very well known in the steel string world, and suddenly the most famous guitarist at the time. It's hard to recognize now how famous Williams was in the 80s. I mean, the guitar world has changed. There's really not many stars. It started with Segovia. Segovia was the luminary. He was a household name. Everybody knew who Segovia was. You didn't have to be a guitarist. Mm -hmm. Then the next tier, you know, Williams, Bream, and, and Fisk, and especially Williams and Bream, and Parkening here in the States, mm -hmm. they weren't household names. Everybody didn't know them, but in the guitar world, they were just superstars. Mm -hmm. And Williams is a household name in England, just as Parkening was here, because he used to play on Tonight Show with Johnny Carson regularly. And, and then the next tier came. Great musicians, but Nobody knows them except guitar people. And this is kind of maybe a natural cycle. So I just point this out. Things are so fragmented now. You know, Unless you're some kind of pop star, you're not that well known, really, except in your own field. Yeah. But in the 80s, Williams was really a superstar in the classical mm -hmm. sense. So I went from just not being really known very well at all to suddenly having the best-known guitarist in the world recording and playing my pieces. So I kind of just jumped over all the hurdles that one might have to go through to get to this position. So there was immediate interest in what I was doing. So this was wonderful. Then at the same time, I began playing with the quartet. So many things were happening at the same time. It, was, it wasn't just one thing that helped my career, but they were all big things. You know, the Wyndham Hill thing was very big. The Williams thing was very big. And joining the quartet was would would prove over time to be, a, you know, really amazing artistic and mm -hmm. career decision. I wonder <clears throat> how much each of those things reinforced the other. And it seems like today that's kind of what you have to do still is get yourself involved in a lot of different projects and hope yeah. they all sort of support each other. I, I don't think they supported each other much, yeah. uh, especially the, the steel string thing was totally different. You know, visibility of my solo compositions seemed to be so separate from the quartet for quite a while. I think it maybe came together later just because I was around for a long time writing quartets, writing solos. Mm -hmm. But they were kind of spears thrown in slightly different directions that gathered momentum, actually, and had a lot mm -hmm. of inertia. So before we hear more about the early days of Sunburst, let's give it a listen. This version is off his album Perfect Sky, where he recorded it playing a steel string guitar.
My first recording is, is on a steel string. Yeah. And though it works quite well in nylon, mm -hmm. um, but it really, my conception of it was steel string. Mm. Because my first recording, Perfect Sky, was also done in 1986. I had just done that before I left for Europe in that, on that trip. Mm -hmm. And after it got so famous from William's recording, I needed to have my own nylon string version. So Into Dark, I, I did my solo version. Then Chris Parkening wanted to play it, and he did. Now, that story is interesting. Chris has worked with Kathleen Battle on several projects, The, the Great Soprano. Mm. And, the, and these were extremely visible recordings, very high level. You know, she was incredibly famous. They were doing a record together and Chris said, no guarantees, but Kathleen is looking at songs for guitar and, and voice, high soprano. So I wrote a set of five or six songs and they had to be sacred. They wanted sacred text. So I searched mm. and searched and, and I wrote these songs that have never been done. Actually, Scott Tennant has performed them and a few other people, but they've never mm. been really professionally recorded. They're really good. And the guitar parts are immensely difficult. Uh, Kathleen Battle liked one of them very much, but it didn't make the final cut. Uh. And that's okay because the pieces exist and that's the important thing. Mm -hmm. But Chris said, I have one guitar solo on the record and I want to do sunburst. He said, but can we retitle it to make it a sacred title? Because everything's sacred. And I was sort of, oh, I don't know, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but, but he said, well, two things. Bach would do this all the time. He'd take one of his pieces and he'd yes. use a sacred sense and he would give it another title. And uh -huh. I thought, okay. He said, also, the record's slated to sell three quarters of a million copies. And then suddenly I was extremely willing, you know. <laughs> yeah. So it ended up being called Jubilation. Oh. And he also asked me, can you personalize it for me? So for Chris, I wrote an introduction. So Sunburst, that's when you hear this introduction now and then, uh -huh. which I really like. Another reason I needed to re-record it, to include uh -huh. the introduction. Uh -huh. So there's one other aspect of this piece that's interesting. Mm. My first recording, Perfect Sky, which I released on cassette in 1986, because it was still very expensive to put, put out mm. CDs. CDs were still pretty new. Mm. And uh, John Dearman produced it for me. He also mm. produced yeah. Hauser Sessions as well. So uh, we worked together quite a lot in that way. So when I played my first rendition of Sunburst, I had quite a different idea. It had the same theme. That da -da 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 -da. But what it was was a raga thing. Everything oh. was in D. Just, it didn't go anywhere else. I mean, it did, all, it did some of those themes and everything, but then there was a whole strumming section in the middle that was sort of Raga-esque moving mm. around. And I played it for John, and it was, it was charismatic. It was good. And he said, you know, he said, I see what you're doing. It kind of works. It works pretty good. But you might want to think about just moving, adding some other chords. I mean, obviously, a lot of my stuff is extremely harmonic, but I was seeing this as a Raga kind of expression, mm. not Indian, but just having that implication yeah. and but i thought about what john said hmm maybe i overdid it here maybe it does sort of get tiring just in d mm -hmm. so i rewrote the middle completely with that ostinato thing because of john's yeah that didn't exist until then until john oh. gave me that advice and immediately when it jumps from d to f all things like that i added in because it didn't move around any other chords oh. so i rewrote it like in a day or two just before the session so the, when I recorded it, I had just rewritten it maybe three days before. So I still was having trouble remembering some of the bits. And I even played a couple sections a little bit different than I actually wrote it. I owe John a debt of gratitude for his advice because that, that actually, I rarely change pieces by someone's opinion, but that one, his comment there, I thought was really a good one. So I, thank goodness I rewrote it. Let's now jump forward to the present and talk about Andy's most recent album, actually a two-CD set, titled Yamor. I did all the edits on these. Oh, you did all your own editing? Yeah, I just... Why, why not? Exactly, because you're going to have to listen to all that stuff anyway. And make yeah. this, you know, It would take so much time, it's just easier for me to... This one drove me crazy. It was just so much music. By the end, I was just kind of, you know, really ready Fried. to... Yeah, exactly. How just, long did it take? I spent about two months doing the edits. Just, you know, they were going very fast, but they got slower and slower as I got more detail-oriented. Some of the music is, I don't know, the edits were complex. It's yeah. funny, I had so much to choose from, and I played very well in the sessions. But still, you know, once you start trying to shape the way you want it to go, and you're listening to everything, and mm -hmm. it's easy to get a little bit too involved, I think, in the minutia, and that, that happened right. at times. It's almost like you're changing your, your own interpretation through the editing process. And in a way, that's completely valid, because recording is an art in itself. You know, right. I, I don't see it as in, it bearing much relation to performance. Right. 
Well, Yamor is the piece I wrote for an Italian guitar player named mm-hmm. Andrea Vettoretti. I met him in Czech Republic. Really great guy. And he plays in a duo with his Turkish fiance. They live together in Treviso, which is outside of Venice. Mm-hmm. And so he heard my concert. We heard each other's concert in Czech Republic at a festival there. And he invited me to come to Rome mm-hmm. and Treviso. He has a great festival. And he wanted me to be the headliner for those two concerts. Mm-hmm. And he said, would you write me a piece as well? And I said, I'd be glad to, because he was a really great player. So I wrote this piece right up you know, close to the wires, I usually do, because mm-hmm. I work better under pressure. So I, mm-hmm. I had just finished it. In fact, the day before the concert in Treviso, I still had not settled on the form until that day. The first run-through of that form the day before the concert. So it was, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of was writing out forms like A prime, B prime, you know, putting it together because I had all these sections, mm-hmm. still writing it. So when I played the concert, I didn't have a title for it. Now, in the audience was uh, Muriel Anderson. She was there at the festival as well. She's more of a, a fingerstyle player. She ah. was friends with Chet Atkins. She's a very good player and ah. uh, known her a long time. So we're, we're hanging out, you know. So after the concert, Muriel is sitting at the table with Andrea and I and, and Yamur, the... Uh, mm-hmm. His girlfriend. Okay, so uh, Muriel is sitting at the table with with Andrea, who runs the festival, and his you know his fiance Yamur, also his duo partner, and we're talking about what to name the piece. And Muriel says, "Why don't you name it for Andrea's girlfriend?" And everybody cheers. And I'm thinking, I don't know, it's a good idea or not? You know, her <laughs> name is Yamur. In Turkish, that means rain. But just to name a piece for somebody's girlfriend, you know, is that a good idea or not? Are they going to stay together? Who knows? <laughs> right. So I look. And Andrea, like, what do you think? And he goes, you know, what's he going to say? You know, Yamour is really smiling next to him. And he's going, oh, great, whatever you want, that's good, yeah. So it became Yamour, but in Turkish it's spelled Y-A-G-M-U-R. Uh-huh. So the G is silent. So I ended up putting it on programs, and so did Andrea, who was beginning to play it. People are going, Yagmer. Yagmer, yeah. Nice piece, Yagmer. So it's like, oh. (laughs) So I was looking around for another title, and then I got an email from Andrea, and his first line was, can we change the title? And I'm thinking, the worst. I'm thinking, oh, no. you know, Yeah. (laughs) But he he went on to write, no, no, everything's fine. It's just here in Italy, they're calling it Yagmer, too. So, So we decided it has to be something else. And I told that story in Florida when I was playing a concert, and this older man came backstage after and says, you have to keep the title. You have to. It just, somehow it defines the piece. Just respell it, like, as love with a Y in front right, of it. Right, that's what I was thinking. Amour is so, part of the name, yeah. You know, at first I was thinking, I've got to lose this title entirely, but he, he was very passionate about it, so I started thinking about it. That's what it became. It became Yamur, huh. which... You know, works. Yeah, it, it doesn't mean anything. It, it started out as a Turkish word for rain and became... Mm-hmm love with a Y in front and ended up insinuating itself into the as being the title cut it's just I don't know it's just one of those things how it all worked out so here's that title track Yamor
If that was your first time hearing that piece, I bet you were surprised by the vocal part. I certainly was, so I asked Andy about it. I wrote a piece for Scott years ago. That would be Scott Tennant. He asked me to, to write him something, and because there was no deadline, it took you know a couple years just working on it now and then. And he asked, he said, don't make it hard just to be hard, because usually when people would write something for Scott, they know very well how good his technique is, and they would make the piece really difficult, which didn't always please him. You don't want to just be working so hard just because you can. And, you know, he also likes really simple, luscious music. Mm -hmm. So the piece I wrote for him is actually quite difficult, but I didn't try to make it difficult. I actually tried to make it very simple, and I started simple. Mm -hmm. Well, it just there was one section near the end where it became clear as I was writing it that a vocal line doubling the melody briefly was just a really nice, surprising textural change. It really added some, some depth to it. I wasn't planning it at all. It just became clear that this was interesting. So that Scott didn't like so much. Doesn't want really want to sing. I had so many guitarists, but I, you know, I encouraged. Anyway, that was the first piece where I really used that, and I've used it in two others. Yamor is one. It's really nice. It's the, the middle line. So once you hear the voice doubling that center line, then your ear hears that what you're hearing is just this kind of almost Brazilian groove going on is actually three voices. Almost all my stuff is contrapuntal. Even mm -hmm. if it's not at first blush, I always think in a linear way, mm -hmm. and the harmonies are more coincidences of voices. Okay, just in case you don't know, let's talk about contrapuntal writing, or counterpoint, for a minute. Counterpoint is a system of writing music that came into being before we actually thought about chords. So composers in the Renaissance and much of the Baroque didn't think about writing chords that relate to each other. Instead, they thought in multiple and often independent melody lines. So if we hear this excerpt from a piece by Josquin Dupree, we hear one melody enter, and then another, and then another. It's pretty easy to hear each separate line, right? Now, an interesting byproduct of having multiple melody lines is chords. Because when you have several melodies, you're bound to have several notes at the same time. So if I loop a key moment in Josquin's piece, like this, we get a chord. And while that's amazingly annoying, it's very easy to hear the chord made up by the multiple parts. But the way of thinking is not about that vertical relationship. It's about the melodies. What happened later was that composers began thinking about these vertical stacks of notes, or chords, as independent or at least separate from a melody. Most music we hear today is written that way. Chords. melody. Writing music harmonically, meaning writing music with chord progressions in mind, 
and writing counterpoint, writing music by combining virtually independent melodies, are quite different ways of approaching composition. That's completely the way I look at it. To me, that adds a bit of clarity to the piece. Even in this simple section, you begin to hear it as three voices moving. Mm. An interesting story there, um, Avenue of the Giants was written for Fingerstyle Guitar Magazine, which I used to have a column on, and that's mm. a three-voice study. The whole thing is in three voices, and it's mm. a bit jazzy. You know, it's got, The rhythms are jazzy, and the harmonies are nice and a little bit extended. It has this vocal part where, again, I'm singing an inner line, and... Uh, I was in Germany and an ensemble was doing this. Instead of one guitar, they had divided it all up so each of the students had one of the lines. And it just wasn't working quite right. I asked them, I said, can you each sing your part? And they're like, of course. You know, in, in Germany, they're, you know, of they're course they it. could do yeah. that. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're, yeah, so, they're, they're so musical. You know, like, <laughs> It was not even a pro, not even thinking about it. And so suddenly they sang it while they were playing it and it was in perfect three-part harmony. And it was just luscious. They did it on an evening concert, student concert. That was a great moment. That's not awesome. a problem, not a problem. And they did it in concert with the voices? Yeah. <laughs> but it, awesome. the, the moment was like, of course we can do this. And they did it recording right ready the first, just right then. I was like, that wouldn't happen anywhere else on earth. No, it I can't like, imagine yeah. anybody. It was a beautiful moment. You always tell the students to sing it, yeah. and they never do. Yeah. Right? So let's hear Avenue of the Giants, also on Andrew York's new album, Yamor. Just as an added introduction to this one, Here's a little bit from the liner notes. Avenue of the Giants is named for the old highway in Northern California that winds through what is left of the ancient redwood groves. It's a primordial experience to visit these forests. And yes, he is tapping his foot on this track. heard so many times that if you want to be a writer, you have to write every day. Whether you write something good or bad, it doesn't matter, you just write. And we as musicians understand this perfectly, because to play an instrument or sing, you have to play or sing every day. And to take control of our nerves and become comfortable on stage, we have to play in front of people as much as possible, essentially practicing the art of performing. I imagine it's the same with anything in life that we want to excel in. And it struck me in talking to Andrew York, as a composer, he's found this great way to practice creativity. That is the way I, I like to approach life. Some early stage, I, I really figured out that all I really want to do is create new things. That's what I want to do, which could be writing music, you know, playing new music, 
playing doesn't necessarily fit into that, but I have to be able to play to express the music that I write. You know, mm -hmm. it wouldn't do it for me to be only a composer. But the same thing, painting was the same feeling. When I write stories, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Or even when I write software, I find that to be a really intriguing uh, parallel to composition in a way. It lacks sort of the visceral beauty, you know, but there's an intellectual beauty, the complexity of the patterns and things like that and making it all work. It reminds me of composition and, you know, creating code that works, has some elements that, that correspond. So it's kind of all the same. It's like an endless yeah. puzzle. It's exactly it. So it's never really done. Cool. What do you do with software? Oh, I've, I've done a lot of different things. Um, early on, I was, I was selling some background audio software that was virtual wind chimes. They were actually pretty complicated. You could program them yourself and they, they kind of did more than just ding, you know, they were neat. Um, you, you could uh, you could decide hurricane versus uh, <laughs> you could certainly set wind speed you know? breeze or yeah that was but it had a, a wizard that would create perfect chimes with a click in a geometric box and you could of course modulate them change the mode the sound huh. it was a lot of fun that was some of my really early stuff but now I've been doing kind of uh, encryption software for for years now that is I'm just in the stage of releasing it in beta form so it's been a, just a really monster project, a real personal goal to realize all this. So that's that's been a great one. Yeah, I wanted to write encryption algorithms that were as strong or stronger than anything available now, but I wanted to write them in a completely new way because there's some standardized ways of doing it that are uh -huh. accepted. So I, I came at it from a completely different approach. I studied what was out there and just mm -hmm. slowly thought through algorithms that bore no relation to the way it's done now, mm -hmm. but are the equivalent in strength. And actually, I submitted it to the NSA, the National Security Agency, and mm -hmm. so they, they know it exists, because you, you have to. They're deeply involved uh -huh. in encryption. And then I got a license from the Bureau of Industry and Security to export it, because you can't export strong encryption. It's illegal, unless you have a license. So I'm actually licensed to export strong encryption. <laughs> so it's, it's a trip. I think all this talk about software and coding is a great way to transition into talking about Andrew York's piece, Mechanism. A couple pieces like that now, which to me, I don't hear anything else like this out there. And people are responding to it like crazy. I end my concerts now with Mechanism, and it's got such a rock and roll energy in a way that I don't hear, you know, in any classical writing. I'm really excited about it, and as well as me, of course, as a contrapuntal, like all of my stuff. And the idea is, has a lot of humor in it, too. It's I usually don't have ideas behind my pieces in terms of stories or images, but this one does. It's, it's sort of a, the concept of two little machines that become self-aware and then aware of each other, and they try to communicate with each other. And you hear them chattering back and forth to each other, one at a time and, and collectively, and, and they don't know how to do this yet. They don't know how to communicate. So they're, that lends the mechanistic aspect to the piece as they try to figure it all out. First thing, they don't even know how to be in the same key at first. Somehow it sounds completely right. It's the strangest thing. Another thing I like about this piece is that it's very tightly constructed. Almost all the ideas are, they come from a very small cell. I like the way that um, I used very small amount of material to create the whole piece. So here's Mechanism.
Debbie Morton wanted to know about no, your yeah. favorite painting and why. Favorite painting as in you know, historically or that I've done? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, that's very different. Well, I'd rather answer it first. Well, people ask me all the time, what's the favorite song you've written? And I, it's not a, something I can answer. Right. I love them all in various ways for different reasons. It's like <laughs> she's a favorite kid. Right. I've only got one, so she's the favorite. But yeah. <laughs> if I had more, maybe, maybe there would be one. I don't know. <laughs> As for other paintings that I really like are painters, I guess my favorite is Paul Klee. People pronounce it different ways. The Austrian painter. I, his use of color is so sophisticated yet earthy. It's not sophisticated like extremely detailed, but just his juxtaposition of color. When you see it, you just sense this rightness and this incredible intelligence in putting color together in ways that you would never imagine was possible. Just the way some musicians have deep abilities with their ears or their sense of time, he had it with color and texture. So, And he was also a violinist and a scientist, so I kind of relate to him a lot. And of course, Picasso is a big hero of mine. I just think Picasso was a great genius. He he represents everything I like in an artist in that he was considered a complete technical master in his teens. His understanding of anatomy, his ability to paint anything was unparalleled even in his late teens. But then he went very far afield throughout his life and cubism, all the things he did. And I respect this because you know he didn't paint abstract because he couldn't paint well. He could paint perfectly anything everything he did was was by personal choice and by need of expression and this is what i like in an artist you know proving that he had ultimate chops and then deciding how to use them in ways that were often surprising so debbie morton wanted to know favorite painting of mine yeah that's a tough one i yeah is the latest always the favorite i have a one that might be on my website it's kind of a matisse style palette knife painting actually what i did is i underpainted it and let that dry, and then I smeared blue, like this beautiful blue paint over it, and scraped away to make the drawing. So it's a still life where actually by scraping away to the underpainting, you see the image. It reminds me of Matisse. My self-portrait is very brooding, and it's all blue. I kinda like that one. Yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. It's you know yeah. very blue, and I, that one came out, I thought, really, really I well. So, so I don't know, I, I like them all. They're all different, you know? Mm -hmm. But uh, I haven't painted now for years. I should get back to it one day. I miss it, but... Uh, well, you got so many different things. It's just not time to so do everything, while we are on listener questions, Jason Bear, B-A-H-R, or Jason Barr, had a question about when the music from Yamor would be published in sheet music. They're all coming. I'm working on them now. I'm behind, as usual, but I've, they're all in various stages of notation. They'll be on my website before long. Uh -huh. So, yeah. speaking of, so does everything come out on the guitar first, and then you eventually write it down? Uh, sometimes... Like compositional process? I notate really quickly, so often... Once it's done, I've already got most of it notated. Maybe not all fingered. You know, fingering and formatting takes a little bit more time. Mm -hmm. But everything in there is essentially almost all the notes are down. The only exception to this is centerpiece, mm -hmm. which is a, a solo version of the band piece I did with Andy Summers on my previous record, which is titled Centerpiece. So this solo version, because I kind of recomposed it, thinking of the band track that I did with Andy Summers, that one I don't have anything written down, not one mm -hmm. note, because it came from a different place. Mm -hmm. But usually when I write a solo piece, I begin notating it as soon as I have sections that I think are, you know, I'll change them, of course, but I think that they're shaping up. I'll begin to notate them immediately just for the heck of it. So you'll play process. through a section, write it down? Yeah, that, that happens. When I'm first composing, I'm not writing it down. I'm kind of working on ideas and going pretty far afield with the sketches. But then once I begin to hone down the sketches and I start seeing a potential form, I mm -hmm. often start entering it to the computer mm -hmm. uh, at that stage. Yeah, it's great because then you don't lose anything you did. Do you also record? Yeah, I your... record everything because uh -huh. I, f I find some of those moments are so ephemeral that if I don't catch it right then, you can go back seconds later. Now, let me play that again. It's like, God, what was it? I did something a little different that really had the right feel. You can lose it so quickly. So if you tape it, you just go back and there, ah, oh, that's set. Too. Yeah. yeah. So I, I used to use a cassette recorder because it was one button to push. You didn't have to mess around with technology. You could, you could just be in the creative groove, hit one button. The quality uh -huh. was bad, but it captured the intent. Uh -huh. But now I use the iPhone, just, you know. Uh -huh. But even that's like, you have to do three things. You have to, you know, go to the mic, yeah. click on that, click on that. Just enough where it's, it kind of pisses me off. But still, yeah, like you would never boot up your computer and like launch Pro Tools. No. By then you're, you're in such yeah. technological mode that yeah. any creativity is gone, uh -huh. never to return. You know, I have these stacks of cassettes from the old days, which is great. It's like the history of my creative output sketches are all on cassette from oh, like the early cool. 80s, you know. 
for the last segment of the show, I had to ask Andy about his 20 years as a member of the LA Guitar Quartet and the reasons for his leaving. And then he's got some great advice for those amateur composers out there. You know, as the years went by, the group, you know, we, we really found our voice. I was certainly a big part of that in writing for the group, even though all of us had had experience with other styles. You know, mm -hmm. Bill played rock and Scott flamenco, and, and, and John's also studied a number of things, Brazilian flamenco, he's been mm -hmm. all over the place. But only I was like a real serious style star. I mean, I was like, you know, playing in jazz groups when I was young, and I was playing in rock bands in bars when I was like 15 and stuff like that. I actually came to LA to be a jazz and studio player. I was right. real for serious your, about all masters, this. masters, right? That yeah. Was, uh, was that part of the master's idea? I was a studio you... major, which at that time meant you played oh, jazz. Oh, you studio. You're I, in my studio degree player. is in studio. I mean, I'm undergraduate oh. is, is classical performance, but my master's is in studio. Hmm. Which at that time, I mean, was only jazz. You just played jazz all day. That's right. what you did. And uh, you studied with great jazz players. Lenny Rowe and Joe DiOrio were around. You know, we just, it was incredible. When they asked me to join in 1990, after I'd been playing with them unofficially since 1986, probably well over 100 gigs with them, we had a... Uh, Contracts for school concerts, especially, mm. that were really fun. So I did so many of these. And then I started touring with them in 1990, and they asked me to join. It was actually a big decision for me. It may seem crazy, but I had to really decide if that was a direction I wanted to go, because it seemed like just sort of a splinter of my abilities and what I wanted to do artistically. I thought it really had a lot of promise, so I said yes. And at that time, the group was far more conservative. I mean, it was still really had a kind of a Romero kind of thing going. Mm -hmm. And that always seemed to me that that wasn't really going to work mm -hmm. because we weren't Spanish, we were American, and we had to, to sound authentic, we had to reflect our culture. So began an ongoing tension about the direction of the group. Now, there were, we were all four strong personalities, mm -hmm. and we all had ideas about what would be good for the group or what we wanted to do with the group. Some of those overlapped and some did not. I didn't write anything for the group for a couple of years. I kind of just got into learning all the repertoire, getting into the dynamic, and plus I was the new guy. Um, but then I began to write, and I began to write in earnest, and encourage the group to move in a direction that really embraced other styles. Consequently, we did find our voice, and that was the strength of it. We sounded completely American and open to other styles, and that's where our popularity came from. Mm -hmm. The biggest moment was when we signed with Sony. That was mm -hmm. a huge culmination. Album. The producer, our producer, Grace Rowe, told me, she said, we're, we're signing the quartet because of your compositions. I saw that as a great validation that my input to the group was a direction that was good for our, not only artistic viability, but our success. I mean, everyone has opinions about that in the guitar world. You know, they, some people wished the group had been more conservative. But for me, I knew that that had no future. You would not get signed to a major label being a recast Romero's or anything. I mean, what, what the Romero's did was fantastic, but they did it. That was them. That was their nature. They are Spanish, and mm -hmm. this is correct for them. For us, it would not be correct. It wouldn't be real. Mm -hmm. So time went on, and you know we were having a really good time. We got along very well. You think how long we were together. 16 years or so? Yep. If you go from when I really started mm -hmm. playing unofficially with them, 20 years. So it was a real karmic thing. We had a lot of work to do, and we did it. And we reached every goal I could want. You know, we won. The, we were nominated for Grammy, then we won a Grammy, and we recorded for great labels, Telarc being the best, hmm. I think, far better than Sony. So treatment of the artists? Or? Absolutely. Hmm. Uh, Sony, are they're tough guys. They The most creative accounting I've run across. Of course, there's another label I won't mention that accounting was so creative that it's probably illegal. But Sony, yeah, they never pay. They just you know that you're going with them for the cachet of being on Sony. They're tough guys, yeah, you know. But Telarc, honest, completely above board, and artistically cool. We worked with Bob Woods, who had like he was the producer for Oscar Peterson and other hipster artists. So he was great. I really liked working with him. He really liked what I was doing and uh, in writing for the group as well. The problem for me was as time went on, I was just feeling more and more constrained. And a lot of people don't understand this. Like, what do you mean? How, you know, but you know, I was writing a lot of quartets and and everything was just guitar, guitar, guitar. And for me, it just it satisfied less and less of my expressive needs. And that was that was really the bottom line. And so I had told them I was going to leave more than a year before I did. Mm -hmm. Gave them lots of notice so they could find a replacement, which they mm -hmm. did. And Matt Greif, Matt is just fantastic. He's perfect. Mm -hmm. So. I mean, it's some of the background that you do, right? 
Yes, he's the rocks and the jazz. Yeah, he can improvise, really, yeah. which you know, I was I was the one in the group that improvised, mm-hmm. and that was another thing. I mean, I missed. I loved improvise, but that wasn't really something. The snippets, like you know, if you hear Lotus Eaters when we recorded that, you know, that's mm-hmm. me improvising those things. And um, but you know, it's just not the same when you do it. Yeah, it's you know, you know what I'm saying. It's yes. like you got to really be in a, a situation that is fertile for improvisation by being around people that know how to do it. So it's not something that could ever be satisfying to me. So I missed that. But since it's a good element to have in the group, Matt does that beautifully. He's a great improviser and he's got a wonderful sound. He's real sound, dark sound oriented like me. Bill told me, he said, they auditioned many people, but when they auditioned Matt, when they played with Matt, he said, we sound like ourselves. I thought, yeah, that's that's perfectly put. So the group sounded like the group when Matt played with it. So it was just seamless. So Matt came in. It was all very amicable, which is beautiful. Surprisingly, so many groups don't end that way. They're my brothers and always will be. And it was a great experience. I, I love every moment. And I think about all the things we did together. It was great. I just had to go. I just, my inner self was saying, you got to go. You got to go do your next thing. And now everything I do artistically is mine. And my decisions are all mine. The expression is all mine. And that was very important to me. A lot of guitar composers that don't really have much practice experience or skill with composing will do that fishing kind of approach they'll they'll slide geometric shapes you know around and find oh that one didn't work oh that one's nice i could put these two together that's not really thinking compositionally mm-hmm. now there's nothing wrong with with doing that as, as a way to find a feeling or a sound that you love but after that you really need to put things together in a way that has order and patternistic integrity because if you don't then your music sounds random and it really doesn't have much depth again there's nothing wrong with that Mm -hmm. but it's just that any art form has layer upon layer of order Mm -hmm. and pattern Mm -hmm. and that's what i strive for the music of bach is the perfect example you can zoom in all the way zoom out everywhere you look there are shapes and forms that have ultimate integrity and mathematical purity but he didn't start from that place it's just dripping with beauty too at every level and that's what's amazing it's easy to be mathematical in your composition but it'll sound like that it'll be lacking any kind of element that draws the emotions in so to combine the two is really difficult to young composers i would say don't let that idea of putting patterns and ideas that have integrity don't let that intimidate you at all should be a joyful kind of thing where you search for ideas that move you that's the bottom line But then when you put them together, sketch in a way where you search also for connections. Can that note lead to that note in an interesting way? Is there a way I can connect those lines from this measure to this measure? Purposely put in order. That's not that hard to do. It just requires a willingness to participate on that level. And when you create music like that, again, that's when music becomes a cognitive test for those that are listening. Someone that knows nothing about music might respond to the surface beauty the, the overriding emotion. Yeah, the, the accessibility, the melody or whatever. Someone that's got a pretty good ear might go, wow, interesting chord changes there. It's a little bit surprising. Yeah. Someone that knows quite a bit more might go, hey, well, listen, there's actually inner lines in there moving that are connecting together. They pause for a bit, then they pick right back up. And that makes kind of an inner form intention. The more places you can find levels of order in art, the more interesting it is. And again, the philosopher Whitehead said, intelligence is... The perception of pattern per se, which just means the definition of intelligence is how many patterns one can perceive in anything. Mm. The more intelligent a mind is, the more patterns will be available to it when it looks at any given set of information. Mm -hmm. And music is nothing but a set of patterns. So as a composer, we want to joyfully only do the things that we love because what anybody else thinks about it doesn't matter at all because they will always have opinions and they'll always be limited by their own ability to hear patterns. And so the composer can only be true to his own nature and put in there the ideas layer upon layer upon layer that he loves. So this is the joy of creating. And to younger composers, you you will be misunderstood and you will be loved for the things you do too. Everything will will happen and you can't take any of that personally, which is hard. First time you ever read a, a bad review about your music, it's very, very annoying. But as long as you stick to doing the things that excite you and move you, you'll sound authentically like yourself, and that's what you want to do. Mm. So before I leave you with one more short piece of music, let me say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf.
All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. Hey, if you like the show, please rate it on iTunes or maybe even write a review. Like it on Facebook or follow on Twitter at All Strings. I hope you enjoyed listening to the music and words of Andrew York today. I'm going to leave you with one of the last pieces he wrote for the LA Guitar Quartet called Hidden Realm of Light. Enjoy! Enjoy!